Hello, everybody. We're picking up from where we left off last week on uh, the, the issue of understanding Israel by looking at people in the New Testament and what they believed about the future of, uh, of God's covenant people. Um, before we even get into that, though, I want to just run you through the, the, uh, the Ordo Eschaton, the order of the end times. I just want you to see kind of the, the flow of, of what's going to happen in the end times. Uh, and so we'll put this visual up right here to, to give you a sense of the, the uh, direction of it. It starts with the rapture of the church. Uh, that means that at some point where we, we don't know when and we'll have no sign, it'll be like a thief in the night, uh, all the believers on the earth will instantaneously be removed from the earth. And, uh, and so the, the entire church influence is gone. The Holy Spirit that indwells all the, the people, he's gone. So the restrainer of evil on the earth is gone. Uh, and that inaugurates then a seven-year tribulation because all of God's people on the earth are removed. All of the people that worship Jesus are gone. And so seven years uh, of tribulation begins, and that's going to be led by a, a world leader who emerges. He's going to make a, a treaty with Israel, and everything's going to be good for like half that time. But then in the middle of the, uh, like three and a half years later, he's uh, going to break that treaty, and, uh, and then uh, he's going to unleash massive persecution. This world leader we call the Antichrist, by the way. Um, and, uh, and he's going to start hunting down anyone who believes in Jesus or, uh, or is a Jew, and he's gonna, um, he start, starts killing them off. Uh, at the end of this seven-year period, oh, sorry, when that happens, um, when, he, when he breaks this treaty with Israel and stuff, uh, a, a bunch of Jews come to faith. Many of them uh, become Christians. They start worshiping Jesus, and that is when Israel has repented and that's when they start placing faith in the Messiah, and they start evangelizing. There's 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, um, and uh, they evangelize the world, and countless Gentiles start coming to faith. At the end of that seven-year period, uh, at the halfway point is when the Antichrist started persecuting Israel, and Israel came to faith. Um, at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus returns, and when he returns, he returns with all believers from all history, Old Testament saints, New Testament believers, church members, all that stuff. Uh, they are all with him, and, uh, and he, he goes into the final battle with the nations at Mount Megiddo, Har Megiddo, which is where we get the word Armageddon. And, uh, uh, and that's, it's not a, a very tense battle, you know, just right when it starts, he ends it. And, um, and then he establishes a 1,000-year kingdom, which is the kingdom that... Uh, he gives to you know he he rules from Jerusalem in Israel. That's that's the Israel kingdom that's been uh, talked about in all these Old Testament promises and things. You know that idea that Israel will be restored to a kingdom because that's what it used to be under King Saul, King David, King Solomon. It used to be a kingdom and then it's fallen into not that anymore. So it'll be restored into a kingdom. Uh, Jesus will reign over that kingdom, and after a thousand years of doing that, an earthly reign on the earth, physical reign. Uh, then there will be final judgment where everyone who has ever lived uh, will be given a, f a final sentence to uh, he heaven or hell. And by heaven, it's really like uh, there'll be a new universe. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. That's where God's people will dwell. And then anyone else who, uh, who did not believe in Jesus, not uh, surrender to Jesus, will be in, in hell, the eternal uh, state in the lake of fire. Well, anyway, that's exactly how Revelation is laid out. That's the first... Um, that's, you know, you get the first uh, five chapters of the book, and then 
uh, rapture happens somewhere in there. It's not really talked about in Revelation, but then you get tribulation in chapter 6 through 18. You get the return of Jesus and you get Armageddon in chapter 19. You get the kingdom and, and final judgment in, in chapter 20. And then you get the new universe in chapters 21 and 22. History is headed toward these events, this inevitable end, because God is sovereignly in control of history and that's where he's taking it. And it starts with rapture and, it's, uh, and that's imminent uh, meaning it's the next thing in God's plan. You know, uh, nothing has to happen before it. There are no signs before rapture or anything like that. Nothing happens before rapture that we, that we know of. It's just going to happen. Now, some people think that the gospel has to finish reaching every nation on the globe first. Uh, but that's not ever talked about in scripture. It doesn't say that. It, it does say that the, the globe will be covered with the gospel during tribulation, which means after rapture, but we don't know if all the nations will be reached beforehand. If it's reached during tribulation, then that means that it'll be accomplished by Israel when Israel repents. Well, the purpose of this series is, uh, of lectures is to show you that a normal, natural interpretation of Scripture leads to this end. You know, it leads to what the Bible is talking about. Uh, and yet, there are still many Christians that believe that the major promises of the Old Testament, like the Abrahamic Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, Davidic Covenant, New Covenant, um, that all these uh, these Old Testament promises and all the prophecies aren't literal. They're, they aren't what they say. When the Bible says Israel, it doesn't mean Israel. It means church. When it says kingdom, it doesn't really mean kingdom. It means salvation. When it says throne, it doesn't really mean throne. It just means majesty or authority. Uh, they, they say it's not literal and, and it shouldn't be understood the way that it's written. Or some people say that the promises are literal and they are for Israel. It's just that Israel forfeited those promises when they rejected and crucified Jesus. You know, they could have had all this stuff, but because they rejected Jesus, they lost all this stuff. If you don't take the Bible to mean what it says, then you end up denying the future salvation of Israel. Uh, You end up denying the future restoration of Israel's kingdom under the Messiah. Uh, You end up denying the future rulership of Messiah on the earth with his people. Uh, And this is all called amillennialism, right? Even if you're post-millennial, you're still just a subset of amillennialism. So when did people start thinking that the promise of a kingdom to Israel was no longer actually a literal, physical kingdom? Or no longer thought that it was to Israel? When did they, uh, when did they go into a different direction? Because as we've been looking at the, the Old Testament promises and stuff, uh, it's very clearly a kingdom promised to Israel. And as we looked at what the priests and the Pharisees and what Jesus believed, they believed in a literal, physical kingdom to Israel. So what, uh, you know, where did this go wrong? Where did, where did people start getting the idea that it was something else, that uh, there's, no, there's not going to be this thousand-year kingdom, the Messiah is not going to establish a kingdom, and it's not going to be for the Jews, it's not going to be Israel and all that stuff. It had to happen sometime after Jesus, because we looked at what the priests believed, we looked at what the Pharisees believed, we looked at what Jesus believed, and today we'll just see what the apostles believed and what the church leaders in the Bible believed. Uh, that's, that's kind of where we'll go. We're finishing up the thought from last time. Did they think that the promises and the kingdom and all that stuff, was it literal or did they think it was figurative? Was it for Israel or was it for the church? And all we need is to hear them say there's no physical kingdom. All we need is for them to say Jesus will not reign on the earth. Yeah, that's all, all we need. They, they, all they got to say is just one time, Israel is over or they forfeited the promises or the church is in and Israel is out. There's no future redemption for Israel. We just need some kind of statement to that effect. 
So we'll look at what the apostles and the church leaders in the Bible believed about the nation of Israel. Let's start with the apostle Peter. He's kind of uh, the big dog that, uh, that I like to look at. He's, um, he's Jesus' right-hand man from the 12, uh, 12 disciples. He's, he's the guy that was second in command uh, after Jesus, right? Uh, looking at, at Peter in Acts chapter 3, right after he and the apostle John healed a, a paralyzed man, this is what happened in Acts chapter 3, verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And he said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he, uh, when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That's a guy named Barabbas. Uh, verse 15. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Okay, now watch this here. Peter just told the Jews, he said to the men of Israel, he said, Jesus was God. He's the author of life. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, our fathers, and you killed him. We saw it. We witnessed the whole thing. And God the Father brought him back to life, but you killed him. You rejected him. So this is the part where Peter's supposed to now say, uh, therefore, you forfeited the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to David. Israel is out. This is where Peter should say that the rejection of the Messiah means that they don't get a kingdom anymore. Right? That's, that's no longer in the cards. But instead, this is what he says in verse 18. Peter says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Now that means that this incident didn't surprise God. He planned for it. He prophesied it through his prophets in the Old Testament. He knew it would happen. It was part of the plan. Now, uh, here's uh, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Uh, verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So Peter doesn't say, oh, you guys messed up. It's too late now. You lost everything. He says, repent. God has a plan for you, right? Re repent so that you can have times of refreshing from Jesus who's appointed for you. That's what he says, times of refreshing. That's, what is that? That's the promise of a future kingdom for Israel, right? They'll have peace. They'll have righteousness. They'll have salvation. It's times of refreshing. And he's telling the Jews to repent because Jesus the Christ, uh, was appointed for them. He says, for you. He's appointed for you. There's still a plan for ethnic Israel. And right now, while Israel is apostate, you know, in unbelief, uh, they don't have times of refreshing. They have times of hardship. While they have this, uh, this, uh, uh, this unbelief, you know, they, they don't have times of refreshing, so they have to repent. When they repent, then they'll have times of refreshing. That's when they'll be refreshed by Jesus. Verse 21. Uh, they'll be refreshed by Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. There it is. Jesus stays in heaven for now while Israel is apostate until the time for restoring all things. Restoring what? The kingdom. Israel will be made into a kingdom again, like it was with King David. But Jesus will be king instead of David being king. 
The restoration will do more than that, right? Creation will, will be similar to what it was before sin entered the world in Genesis 3. It'll, it'll be closer to like the Garden of Eden and stuff, right? The, uh, the description of the restored kingdom in Isaiah 55, it's incredible. People live hundreds of years, which is like what it was like in the beginning of Genesis. If you look in Genesis 5, the genealogy and stuff, um, animals aren't dangerous, there's paradise because there was no death before, uh, before sin entered the world. So it'll be closer to what that was like. It's the start of what will eventually be a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 24, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, meaning the prophets knew that Israel would be restored. They all talked about this specific time that is going to happen. They mentioned the future kingdom of Israel often. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. See, the the Jews that Peter is speaking to, they aren't even Christians. They don't believe in Jesus, right? And he's saying, but the promises are still aimed at you. Ethnic Jews, it's aimed at you. It's supposed to be for the ethnic Jews, right? They, the, the people he's talking to, they're not Christians, but he's saying, you are sons of the prophets and you are sons of the covenant. Uh, he, he said, you disowned the holy and righteous one, the Messiah. You, you killed the author of life, but you're still sons of the covenant. And he says that nothing was canceled. No promise was transferred to someone else. Christ was uh, appointed to come for the Jews. And when they repent, he'll establish the kingdom to fulfill the promises to them. That's what Peter believed. What about the Apostle John? That's an easy one. You know, um, uh, you, got, uh, you got John, and, and John is, uh, you know, he's the guy that wrote Revelation, right? Well, in Revelation 7, he's the one that says 144,000 Jews come to faith and countless Gentiles are saved because of their witness and stuff. Uh, he, John is the guy that wrote Revelation 11, where salvation comes to Jerusalem under the preaching of two witnesses. And John is the guy who wrote Revelation 20, where it says Jesus returns and establishes a 1,000-year kingdom. So John believed all that stuff. He believed that the Jews would come to faith, that the king would reign in Jerusalem, and, uh, and that the kingdom would be established on the earth for 1,000 years. So Peter and John believed that the Messiah would come and establish a kingdom for Israel. What about someone who's not an apostle, but just an, a close associate of the apostles, like um, the, the brother of Jesus, James, right? You know, James was born, uh, sorry, Jesus was born of a virgin, but then after he was born, then his parents, they could have regular biological children, right? And so Mary was a virgin by the time Jesus was born. After that, game on, right? So uh, here's Mary, and she, has, she gives birth to James. James is the half-brother of Jesus, right? Because they share the same mother, but Joseph is not Jesus's biological father. Okay, so here's James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he becomes this big leader in the church. He kind of has authority even over Peter at some point. Like he, he has a, a larger role and Peter is kind of under him. So James becomes the, the president of the church in, in, in a way. I, I don't know what better word to call it. He's just leader of the church, okay? He's ranked among the apostles, even though he wasn't one of them. He wasn't one of the 12. But when we get to Acts chapter 15, there he is, and, uh, and, and Paul and Barnabas uh, were, were these two missionaries. They just returned from seeing how God was saving Gentiles, which is this big thing. You know, like Paul and Barnabas come back, they're like, God is, is taking the gospel and he's saving a bunch of, of non-Jews, 
It's incredible. So James speaks up in Acts chapter 15, verse 13. He says, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Simon or Simon Peter, Peter, right? Uh, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So James is, uh, is uh, he's relating here to the idea that uh, Peter has already told us that the gospel is going out to the Gentiles. That happened in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and this vision that Peter got and stuff. Anyway, uh, James is not saying, uh, he, he doesn't go, well, of course the Gentiles are being saved. The, the, Jews, the plan for the Jews is canceled. The pl- promise has been transferred. He's not saying that. Instead, he's pointing out that God is now making a people out of the Gentiles and that people is called the church. That's us, right? Uh, verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. So hold on. That means that James is saying this was always God's plan to save the Gentiles. The prophets told this to us, that God would be saving Gentiles. For example, that's why Jonah was sent to Nineveh, the capital of a foreign nation, right? That's the capital of Assyria. Uh, God was saving Gentiles. He, he quotes uh, Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. This is what he said. Look at, um, in Acts chapter 15, look at verse 16. It says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. Right? That's, that's James speaking in Acts 15. And he's quoting the prophet Amos, chapter 9. Uh, Amos said that Israel was going to go astray. It would be wayward from God. And that's when God would save Gentiles, the church. But after this, after he's done saving Gentiles, God will return and rebuild the tent of David. What's the tent of David? That's another, that's another way of saying Israel. That's the house of David, right? The house of David. That's Israel. Because it's ruins. Israel will be ruins. It'll, it, it, it won't be a kingdom. It'll, it'll be broken apart and stuff. It's going to be trying to figure out how to live and stuff and how to survive, but it's always going to be under attack and it's always going to be messed up. It'll be ruins, but he will come back to its ruins and he'll restore it. And by doing that, the rest of mankind, uh, whatever is left of mankind at that time, will, uh, will see that he is God and then many will come and seek him out. So, that's what happens in the tribulation, remember? In the end times. Israel comes to faith, 144,000 Jews are saved. They spread out, they preach the gospel. Countless people are saved from every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation, all in Revelation 7. So this is, by the way, uh, why Jesus says in Luke 21, 24, um, I'll show it to you. He says, uh, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Israel will be broken, right? They'll have no kingdom uh, until God saves the Gentiles. Then Israel repents and they'll go and they'll be a light to the world and, and you know, then more people will get saved, right? Because that was the original mission. Israel was supposed to go and save the world. They were supposed to be a light, but uh, they didn't do it. So God went and said, okay, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna save the Gentiles then. And then when, uh, when Israel gets saved, then they'll finally go and fulfill their mission. The majority of the world gets increasingly hostile toward believers. And then Jesus returns, he defeats them, establishes Israel. That's, that's what happens. 
Well, that's what James, the brother of Jesus, believed. He believed that, uh, that this was what the prophets wrote about, that Israel's supposed to be hardened. You know, he's, they're supposed to be wayward for a time. Gentiles are going to be saved. And then when the Gentiles are, are all done being saved, you know, then Israel will, will come back to faith and then they'll go and, and they'll save even more. Well, uh, what, about, what about someone else who's a, a church leader? Let's try the author of Hebrews who we don't specifically know who it is, but the author of Hebrews, okay? Let's, let's talk about him. Look what he, he says on the issue. Hebrews chapter six, verse 13. Hebrews six, verse 13. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, right? God said, I swear by myself. It, he, God basically said, I swear to God, right? Because he had no greater authority to go to. Uh, verse 14, God swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Okay, I know it's complicated. God swore by himself because he can't swear by a higher authority. And he did that in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. If you were there when we went over the Abrahamic uh, covenant, we went through all that. I dragged you through all of it, right? God wanted to convince the Jews uh, his, uh, of his unchangeable purpose, right? That his purpose, his plans would not change. So he made a promise and then he swore by himself that he would keep that promise. That's two things that cannot change because God is not a liar. God can't lie. So he made a promise, can't break that promise. And then he swore, I'm going to keep that promise. And he can't, he can't break that, that oath, right? So there are two things where um, he, these two unchangeable things that say that God is telling you the truth and it's absolutely unchangeable, okay? Um, the author of Hebrews, writing to Jews, he's like, you know, so that means that we who have fled for refuge can hold fast to the hope set before us. What's he mean there? Well, he acknowledges that Israel is wayward right now, so the few Jews that believe in the Messiah have fled for refuge, right? There are some Jews who, uh, who no longer can like hang out in Israel because Israel at that time was very hostile toward Christians. And so they fled for refuge. And he's like, for, for us, the Jewish people that believe in Jesus and know that he's the Messiah, we fled for refuge and we can hold fast. We can hang on to the hope set before us because we know what's gonna happen with Israel, that Israel is gonna get uh, everything that God promised. He recognizes they should be encouraged to hold fast, which means uh, you know, uh, hold fast to the hope. That means joyful, eager waiting that's set for them. For whom? For the Hebrews, for the Jews. Okay, well, that's what uh, Peter believes. That's what John believes. That's what James, the brother of Jesus, believes. That's what the author of Hebrews believes. They all believe that Israel is going to be restored and it's going to be given a physical, literal kingdom that Jesus is going to rule over from Jerusalem as its capital. Well, uh, let's look at this last guy. Um, whom we have the most to say about, and it's the Apostle Paul. Uh, maybe he believed that the promises were non-literal, or maybe he thought that they were transferred to the church. Uh, I'll start with uh, Romans 3, okay? Because the Apostle Paul wrote Romans. 
and uh, we'll, we'll stay in Romans for, for this, but uh, Romans 3, because uh, he just finished talking about the sinfulness of the Jews in chapter 2, okay? He, he, he talked about how the, the Jews, they messed up, they're, uh, you know, they, they're disobedient and all that stuff, um, and uh, he kind of makes this, this thing, uh, this distinction. He says, they're Jews biologically, but they're not Jewish spiritually. Maybe you've met someone like that who is Jewish in terms of his nationality, but not Jewish in terms of religion, okay? So Jewish biologically or ethnically, but not Jewish spiritually. They were ethnic Jews, but they didn't worship God. Okay, um, uh, Romans 3, verse 3, he talks about those people. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? That's a great question, right? If, if the Jews don't believe, does that mean that God will cancel his promises? Does that nullify his faithfulness? right? What is it? If some Jews don't believe, will their unbelief nullify God's faithfulness? And his answer is no. Verse four, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, right? Even if all the Jews were liars, God will stay true to what he said. If all the Jews were, were unbelieving, God will still keep his promise to his people. That's how strongly Paul says it. Now jump over to chapter nine. Uh, in chapter nine, the first five verses, um, Paul says that the Jews, you know, they, they have all these, these incredible uh, privileges from God. Like they had adoption as, as God's sons. They had God's glory. They had the covenants, the law. They had the, the temple and worship. Uh, they had the forefathers like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You know, they had the Christ come from the line of the Jews, right? They had all that. And yet still, Paul only feels sorrow and grief for them because even though they had all that, they're not saved. They had all this great stuff, and yet they're not saved. And so Romans chapter 9, verse 6, he says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, right? God gave all this stuff to Israel, and Israel is in unbelief, but it's not like God's word has failed. No, 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 no. He says in the rest of verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Well, what's going on here? Look, this is super important. God's word hasn't failed uh, simply because Israel is in unbelief. You know, God gave all this stuff. He told all these things to Israel and Israel doesn't believe. And it's not like, well, I guess God, he, he, he failed. It's not that. And Paul's explanation of that is, he says, because not all Israelites really belong to Israel. It's a weird way to say it. Uh, we might say, uh, God, uh, God promised that Abraham's descendants would be blessed, right? Right, okay. Are, uh, aren't all the Israelites his descendants? Yes, yes they are. But even though God said that he would bless Abraham's descendants, God did not ever say that he would bless all of Abraham's descendants. Now, this is really important because how many sons did Abraham have? The answer is two. He had a son named Ishmael with, uh, with a maidservant, Hagar. And then he had a son, Isaac, with his wife, Sarah. So he had two sons. Which one is the son of the promise? Which is the one where all of God's promises about this kingdom and all this stuff, which one gets that? Both of them? No, only one of them. Isaac 
is the son of promise, not Ishmael. Okay, that's, that's really important to believe because even Isaac, he eventually has, uh, he has two sons, twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau and Jacob, okay? Uh, and uh, w- even for the two of them, they're both descendants of Isaac, who's a descendant of Abraham. But do both of them get the promise? No. Jacob is the son of promise and Esau is not. That's, that's super important, that God's promise is not to all the descendants of Abraham. It's not even to all the descendants of Isaac. It's to certain ones to whom he's giving the promise. And um, uh, not, what this means is that not all the children of Abraham are children of the promise that God gave. They're not the children that God was talking about. Not all the descendants of Abraham are the ones that are going to be blessed by the promise. Some are. Some are not. Verse 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. See, Abraham has lots of descendants, but only the ones that God was talking about in his promise, those are the ones that are the offspring of God. Um, so the biological descent is not the deciding factor. God's promise is the deciding factor. He chooses which descendants to, uh, to include in the the promise of, of the kingdom and the blessing and all that stuff. So he talks about Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And, and you see that in verse 13, it says, as it's written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. And hated is a strong word. It's, a, it's more like a literary device, you know, because God still blessed Esau and stuff. He still took care of him um, while he was alive. But uh, it's like a poetic rejection, uh, uh, expression for the word rejected. You know, uh, Jacob, I loved Esau, I rejected. It's, it's kind of, that's what's being communicated there. Um, God never included Esau in the promise. That was never his plan. Esau wasn't a believer. Um, Not even since uh, Abraham's kids nor Isaac's twin kids. Uh, But look, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Right? Is is, Is he pulling a fast one? By no means. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So in terms of human free will, Israel voluntarily chose to reject Jesus, voluntarily chose unbelief, and Israel is held responsible for that. And from God's timeless standpoint, those unbelieving Jews were never part of his promise. Only believing Jews are. Right? Not all the Jews are going to get the kingdom. Some are. The ones that he had in mind with the promise. The ones that he had in mind to come to salvation. Right? So there wasn't an intent to cancel anything. There was not an intent to transfer anything. The promise holds for the believing descendants of Abraham. Let's look briefly at uh, chapter 11 then. Uh, Paul acknowledges that Israel is guilty for their own choices. Uh, he said that he, at the very, very end of, of uh, chapter 10, the very last verse, he calls them d- disobedient and stuff. But look at chapter 11, verse 11. It says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Is that why Israel stumbled? So that they f- might fall, you know, so that they just be destroyed and stuff? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Israel didn't believe in Jesus. So God used that 
to take the gospel to the Gentiles to make the church. He's like, fine, you don't believe? I'm going to do this other thing. I'm going to make the church. And he did that. Why? To make Israel jealous, right? Jealous of the salvation that the church uh, receives, which will someday be Israel's. But it's to make the, uh, it's to make the nation of Israel jealous. Uh, verse 12. Now, if their trespass, Israel, if their trespass, their, if their sin means riches for the world, you know, Gentiles getting saved, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? How much more will their fulfillment mean? So what Paul's saying there is, if God is going to use this time of their unbelief to save Gentiles, how much more will he use the time of their actual true belief to save tons of Gentiles, right? If God's going to save Gentiles while Israel does not believe, how much more will he save Gentiles when Israel does believe? Paul is saying Israel will come to faith, and when they do, countless Gentiles will then come to faith. And that's exactly what I keep saying is described in Revelation 7. I'm just going to, I'll put it up. Revelation 7, verse 4. It says, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then the next few verses, verses 5 through 8, just say 12,000 from the tribes of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin, etc. Okay, so uh, then you get to verse 9. After this, right, after uh, uh, after, uh, 144,000 Jews have come to faith, they're sealed, you know, with with salvation, sealed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, After 144,000 Jews have come to salvation, I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. What he just said there is, after Israel comes to faith, then countless Gentiles will be saved. Back to Romans 11, uh, Paul explains how Israel and the church then relate to one another. Look what he says. Uh, he uses this plant metaphor. Uh, I don't know if you, you knew this, but you could take like certain plants, like uh, like I think citrus fruits. You can cut off branches, and then you could take a you know like an orange tree and a lemon tree. I think you could cut off the branch of like the orange tree, uh, and then graft on the a branch of a lemon tree, and then the lemons will grow off this orange tree. Something like that. I I might be wrong about the actual citrus fruit, but but you can do this with certain kinds of, of fruit trees, and that's the metaphor that that Paul's going to use here. Okay. Um, uh, verse chapter 11 of Romans, verse seven. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although you were a wild olive shoot, you were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So what he's saying is, Paul, uh, Paul is saying that Israel is like the olive tree. Uh, it had the root, and, and you know, it's, it's got the whole central system and everything, right? Uh, and yet, Israel went into unbelief, and so branches were broken off. But uh, Gentiles started to come to faith, so God grafted them on. And he's like, don't be arrogant against the Jews, because remember, the Jews are the root, right? That's where it all came from. God's promise to the Jews is the only reason why you're here. You know, God, God wanted to call the people out for himself, he called the Jews. They, they weren't doing it, so he called the church. But the only reason he did that for you is because uh, it's a time of the Jews' unbelief, and so he said he's going to bring you in. 
So you're lucky to be here. Don't even treat the Jews bad. Don't even, because uh, you know, you're here because of them, right? Even because of their unbelief. Okay, uh, so don't be arrogant. The only reason you're here, you have faith in Jesus. You, you didn't get here by yourself. You didn't earn it or anything like that. Verse 19, then you will say, oh, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. You might get all like, you know, cocky about that. Okay, verse 20, this is, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, right? Fear God. Uh, verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, Israel, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Now, why would Paul point out that, uh, point out that if, uh, Israel, you know, if, if Israel was, was canceled and stuff, why would he mention any of this? Why would he point out that Israel can be grafted in again? Why is he saying that? Because that's what's going to happen. He's like, don't, don't be cocky to the Jews and stuff. You're here because of them. And remember, God has the power to graft them in again. And that is the plan, isn't it? Verse 24, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature, you know, you were unnaturally grafted in, in the farming metaphor, right? It's not natural for, uh, for one tree's branches to grow off of another tree's uh, roots. If you were cut off from what, what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Do you see Paul's uh, argument there? He says, if you who don't belong here, if you're not supposed to be here and yet you're in the plan of salvation, how much more will the people who do belong here, the ethnic Jews, how much more will they come back in and be grafted in again? It's going to happen, right? God uh, saves Gentiles who had nothing to do with him. So how much more will he save the Jews who had everything to do with him, who are the, the direct descendants of Abraham? Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, right? It's a partial hardening not all Jews are unbelievers. Paul, the apostles, early, uh, early church leaders, they're all Jewish, right? So not all Jews are unbelievers. Bunch of Jews uh, came to faith. Uh, they're Jewish Christians even today. But that's the, this is the key to understanding the whole thing, isn't it? Israel is partially hardened until the fullness of Gentiles is saved, until God is saving Gentiles in the church. Then he's gonna, he's gonna have Israel come to faith and then Israel will go and fulfill their mission. After enough Gentiles are saved, then Israel will be saved. They'll evangelize the world, save even more Gentiles. That's exactly what Jesus said. Luke 21, 24. So after the fullness of Gentiles is saved during Israel's unbelief, then Israel gets saved, finally evangelizes the world. Uh, verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Did you get that? In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Did you see that last part there? 
right? God's covenant with them. When they come to salvation, this will be my covenant with them. And that's when he's going to fulfill the promises. What's in the promises? The kingdom, right? The literal physical kingdom, the restoration, the times of refreshing, all of that. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are what? Irrevocable or irrevocable, if you want to pronounce it that way. Irrevocable is, I think, that we're supposed to say it. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, which means they cannot be revoked. He doesn't take his promises back. He doesn't cancel anything. Verse 30, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy, right? Just like you were unsaved and then came to salvation, so now they right now are unsaved, but will come to salvation. That's the kicker. God is not done with Israel at all. They didn't forfeit anything. They, they haven't been uh, written out of the plan. The plan hasn't changed, hasn't been transferred, nothing like that. They're disobedient for now, but they will receive mercy. That's what, that's what the apostles believe. That's what, uh, what the early church leaders in the Bible believed and all that kind of stuff. I'm just going to close with a passage from Daniel I want to show you. Daniel 7, verse 13. Uh, Daniel says, I, I saw in the night visions and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came like uh, one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Right, this is a, a scene where he sees Jesus coming to God the Father and, uh, and he's receiving the kingdom from God the Father. He's being granted authority to go and claim it and have it and it, it's gonna be his. Uh, why? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Messiah's kingdom is a literal kingdom. It will be on the earth. It'll never, uh, it'll never be destroyed. It'll never pass away. It'll never be destroyed. Now, that doesn't mean anything if the word kingdom doesn't mean kingdom. If you're like kingdom just means uh, people will believe in Jesus. That then the language becomes useless. He's saying there will be a kingdom on the earth and it won't be conquered. It won't be destroyed. It won't pass away. It won't die out. It won't go out of business. It will not pass away. It's a kingdom that will not be destroyed. And what's great about this is the Messiah's kingdom will involve people from all nations and languages. That includes Gentiles, right? Just because God is going to give Israel a kingdom does not mean he's going to forget or abandon the church. And just because he has the church doesn't mean he's forgotten or abandoned Israel, right? He has a kingdom for Israel and we are grafted into that plan. And we, along with the believing Jews, will be God's people and he will be our God. That's been the theme of the entire Bible. That's where everything's going. That's the inevitable end. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we hope that we understand that everyone in the Bible has a clear picture of a, a literal, physical kingdom that you have promised to the nation of Israel for the ethnic Jews that would believe in you. Just because someone's an ethnic Jew does not mean that that's a child of promise. But certainly it will be from the ethnic Jews that there are some of them who are promised the kingdom. Those who trust in Jesus. And right now the nation is wayward, they're disobedient, but a time will come 
where they will come to salvation. They will repent and trust in Jesus. And then as a nation, they'll be restored. They'll have a temple. They'll have their worship and they'll, they'll have the special heritage that they were given with the covenants and the glory and the worship and the forefathers, all of that, even the Christ having come from them. And so we pray, God, that we would be eager for that time because we, the church, will not be excluded from that plan. We'll be grafted into it. We have been grafted into it, and we are so thankful for that. We pray that you would keep sharpening our minds and reminding us again and again that you are the God who keeps your promises and you speak clearly, not cryptically, and you let us know that that is your plan. You will be our God. We will be your people. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.